This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Matt Splained, and I'm Rich Bradbury. Strange, disturbing, alarming. Um, these are just some of the police reports that have been filed against Matt Armitage. Uh, but no, really, he's he's actually lovely, really. Uh, and he's back uh, with more weird and wonderful technology stories to delight us with. Um, delight, though, I'm not entirely sure anyone's ever used that phrase to describe this particular show. Matt. That's rubbish. I've heard people <laughs> say it was a delight when he stopped talking so often. Ah, um, I see. Yeah. Um, no, I, I'm going to start with some good news for mm. today's show. Um, everyone's favourite uh, spaceship owning billionaire who isn't Elon Musk. Oh, uh, the other one. Yes, yes. Cuddly old Jeff Bezos. Mm. Um, he may be preparing himself for a political career. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> what jolly fun, yes. Um, he already owns a, a newspaper, the Washington Post, but he obviously doesn't think he has as much skin in the game as he'd like. So, you know, you've got Elon buying Twitter and obviously I guess Mark wouldn't sell him Facebook even if he wanted it. Mm. So that only lives him with two options. It's either he buys Snap or he goes into politics. And, yeah. you know, I don't know how many doggy filter shots of... <laughs> Jeff Bezos we could uh, realistically take. So, you know, <laughs> what is one of the world's richest men supposed to do with himself in his post-Amazon phase? Um, is that a rhetorical question or not? Well, not in the sense that any sane person should be able to answer that question, but uh. Uh, yes, rhetorical in the sense that I'm the questionably sane person who has to answer it. Um of late, Mr. Bezos has been taking to uh, Muskia. That's what I, I think uh, Elon should rebrand Twitter to. Uh, oh, dear. Yeah, Muskia. Uh, then, uh, you know, all those trolls would be able to flex their muscles by musking. Um, mm -hmm. Bezos has been on Muskia telling us all about his uh, views on various topics and how I guess he could do it all better by running the US as though it was Amazon. Uh, he even got into a spat with the White House, who uh, commented on uh, Amazon and its union-related uh, policies. Interestingly, Bezos made some kind of uh, squirrel comment about the US president or the administration that I just genuinely didn't get, mm. uh, especially as it seems to me that it's actually Bezos who's the squirrel, because if the US increases taxes on the, the wealthy or introduces those windfall taxes, it's squirrels like Mr. Bezos who will have the uh, nuts they've hoarded away taken away from them. Um, or mm. maybe I'm just misunderstanding irony. Uh, before we get on, I, I reckon we should call um, Elon's perfume Elon's Musk. Yeah, d definitely. I can uh, I can help with the, uh, the marketing on that if he's listening right. to the show. We can get branding on that. Anyway, uh, back to uh, President Bezos. Well, yeah. I mean, who knows what he's intending to do? Um, you know, say what you will about Bill Gates, but at least he puts his money to work pretty quietly. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there, there are lots of these billionaires who think that their incredible business acumen or luck can be translated into public policy initiatives. Um, 
you know, Trump. Um, but then there's also Michael Bloomberg, who mm-hmm. didn't do quite so well. So who knows what's going to happen? But it does seem to be the case that Bezos intends to flex those muscles as some kind of public policy expert. Whether that sees him seeking office or working behind the scenes, that's still something that remains to be seen. Have you got any more, um, what's it called, good news? Yes, um, machines are finally ready to replace us. Hooray! Oh, wonderful, yay! <laughs> you know, and and you thought you'd have to wait until oh, at least Christmas until you became uh-huh. obsolete. Um, no, so this is a, a story about Google's uh, or f- a story from Google's DeepMind. Um, they've released a new generalist AI called an AGI that can perform more than uh, six hundred tasks. They've called it uh, Gato, which I believe is Spanish for cat, Mm -hmm. Um, probably because it does all of the things that cats do when their humans aren't around, like, you know, play video games and chat online. And some (laughs) sections of the techosphere seem to be going crazy about the abilities of this new machine. Uh, Is it really close, though, to being, you know, human level intelligence? Come on. Well, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, even DeepMind, or at least some of the scientists within the company, seem to be reacting to the new paper about Gatto with, you know, with, I guess, what we can call conservatism. So Mm. normally when we talk about AI, whether in terms of, you know, neural networks, adversarial networks, um, it's all about these different subsets of machine intelligence. You know, we're talking about these super smart machines, but they're super smart with an awful lot of caveats. Like cats. Wrong person to try that joke with, buddy. Uh, (laughs) They may not have opposable thumbs, but they have slaves that do. Uh, This planet (laughs) would belong to the cats if they just slept a little bit less and if they had less interest in you know, governing than Donald Trump did. Um, But anyway, back to the AI. So the machines tend to be really good at the one thing that they're programmed to do. We reported Mm. a couple of years ago on, I think it was AlphaGo, uh, when it beat the world's top Go players. Um, But that machine would simply have been unable to play if you increase the board dimensions by even one square. It wouldn't have been able to figure out the rules. Mm -hmm. So there has been this, I guess it's a need to create adaptive, generalized AIs that can can kind of operate in these multiple capacities. Hence that name, AGI, a generalist Mm. intelligence. Um, Do we have a Turing test for this? No. um, Some examples that I read in uh, New Scientist were things like, you know, uh, sending an AI to university and seeing if it could pass a degree course. Um, That one, of course, is not without risks because chugging beer at a frat house could potentially short out millions of dollars worth of research. (laughs) Uh, Or, you know, seeing whether it could successfully do the jobs that humans do, not just in terms of the tasks, but going out and negotiating uh, the environment. Mm. Uh, Steve Wozniak uh, apparently suggested that uh, we'll only have real AGI when it can enter a random house and make itself a cup of coffee. And that's a really great analogy for several reasons. Firstly, it's quite funny. But then when you actually think about it a bit more deeply, it would be incredibly hard for a machine to break that down into discrete tasks. Mm -hmm. Yet it's something that humans can do instinctively. We can wander into a house, we can find the kitchen, we can look through the drawers and the cupboards, and we can assemble all the parts we need to 
make a cup of coffee. Although I should say generally with the permission of the house owner. Right. Don't you think this is a bit of a misnomer though? I mean, uh, humans, individuals aren't good at everything. Why would we expect a machine to be more capable than we are? Well, you know, your talk on ferrite particles on last week's show was pretty inspiring. You know, don't be down on yourself. Um, <laughs> it is a valid point, though. Uh, Jan LeCun, who's the uh, chief AI scientist at Meta, points out that humans specialize too. So when we talk about human-level intelligence, that's both misleading and, of course, hard to define. You know, mm -hmm. I've met plenty of people who could definitely be beaten in a battle of wits on any subject by a 1980s school calculator. <laughs> but, um, you know, LeCun notes that we don't yet have a machine equivalent of that process that human children have for learning in mm. terms of the time, the nurturing, and the sheer number of, you know, environmental inputs that happen over that long period of time. And of course, there's no clear time frame for us to create that kind of pathway uh, for a machine or any indication that we ever will be able to. So what is Cato Gato, if not uh, a true AGI? Well, it depends who you talk to. You know, in some ways you could think of it as being multiple systems rather than a single entity. Like if you wanted to play Candy Crush, the OS mm. calls up Gatto number 127. If you need a cupcake recipe, then it's Gatto 498. Right. So you get the appearance of generalism when it's actually all these parallel systems operating under an umbrella. Got but it. that's not actually a criticism, even if it sounds that way, because this may be the closest or best route to an AGI that we can accomplish. And scientists are also looking at this as a model that future AI systems can study so that subsequent generations become even more adaptable. So, you know, it's like that pathway to human intelligence, that, that nurturing and, and nature process. We just have to take baby steps. Oh, um, normally Baby Steps is one of your preferred segues into uh, robots, Matt. I do like a cool robot story, um, and luck would have it, I have one now. Why? Um, there yay. you go. See, I was right. Yeah. So The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's one of my favorite science fiction series. I mean, it's pretty much everyone's favorite science fiction series. Yeah. Um, I just love that idea of, you know, hitchhiking your way around the universe with a towel, often without the knowledge of the, the crew on the ship that you're hitching on. Um, so this is a story about a drone that can do pretty much the same thing. It's a machine that can travel through air and water, so it flies and swims, and it's full of neat little developments that are taken from the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. The idea is that the drone could be used to tag wild animals in remote locations. It can fly around looking for its target, and when it spots it, it dives into the water. It attaches itself to the side of whatever creature that it's tracking with a suction device. Where are the neat little developments taken from the animal kingdom? Okay, so the drone was developed by a team at Beihang University in Beijing. They mm -hmm. wanted to create, as I said, a robot that could swim and fly. So for the suction device, they looked at the remora fish. So that's the fish that attaches itself to larger animals like sharks, 
and wails and eats the parasites that attack its skin. You know, we've all seen them in nature documentaries. Yeah. So the Beijing team created a 3D printed sucker based on the one used by the remora fish for their drone so that it can stay firmly attached underwater. And the second neat little development that's from animals is in that transition from air to water. You know, YouTube's full of videos that show you how well most drones do as soon as they hit the surface of a lake or the <laughs> sea. You know, it's bye-bye <laughs> thousands of ringgit. So mm -hmm. the, the team looked at diving birds and they modeled their drone on the kingfisher. And Ooh. the kingfisher has this way of folding its wings up when it enters the water. So they created blades for the drone, the rotary blades, that have hinges, which oh, cool. allow them to fold and unfold as the drone enters or leaves the water, giving it the right amount of propulsion for whatever, um, you know, environment it's in. Mm. So um, what does it do then while it's hanging out with the whales? I mean, what does anyone do when they're hanging out with a whale? Shoot the breeze, yeah. chew the fat. No, I guess, um, yeah. Yeah. No, the, the drone can be used to attach things like GPS tags so that we can monitor the health and numbers of wild populations. And that ability to hitch onto a subject allows the drone to power down. You know, one of mm. the big issues with, uh, with machines like drones is their energy consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, they tend not to be able to operate for very long between charges. And in tests, the drone used around 5% of the power it needs to fly while it's hitching a ride. And it can also attach itself to objects in the air in much the same way. So that way, a single drone would be able to operate while being guided from a boat or, you know, some kind of hovering aircraft or a larger drone for mm -hmm. much longer periods of time than a traditional one, which would enable it to tag multiple animals on a single charge or operation. You see, I, I was sure this was going to end up with something horrible. Um, but, you know, it seems as though you've, you've delivered some good news at last. Um, when we come back, a top of mind solution to oil spills. Don't go anywhere. This is Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Brand-friendly marketeers, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to Matt Splained. When um, we said a top-of-mind solution for oil spills, does that mean hair? Yeah, like physically <laughs> on top of your mind. Um, you know, normally on this show when we talk about hair, it's in the context of efforts that are being made to prevent hair loss. Um, mm. That's partly because it's a multi-billion dollar industry and mostly because I have no hair. <laughs> Astonishing that your infirmities match the content of these shows, Matt. Actually, having no hair is a superpower here in Malaysia. You know, this country's really hot and I've got the perfect excuse to be as aerodynamic as possible. I in see. Fact, you know, it's probably the only part of me that you could accurately describe as aerodynamic. But um, uh, this is a story that's been going around for a while. It's popped up on CNN and Business Insider recently, so I thought it was a good time to chat about it. Mm -hmm. Now, 
we have this really weird reaction to fallen hair. Uh, people who will happily dish themselves food that flies have been buzzing on and around will completely freak out if they find a single human hair in their food. Mm. Now, I don't know about you, but the little bit of hair I have is probably a lot more hygienic than the average fly. Um, if I'm totally off on that from a dermatological perspective, then, you know, tweet or musk it at me. Is dermatological actually a word? It will be by the end of this show. Ah, um, okay. The point is that we love our hair while it's attached to our head, but sometimes... For some reason, you know, we're terrified of it when it inevitably mm. falls out. Um, one of the things that we certainly don't think about doing with it is upcycling. Okay, I'm very afraid about where you're going with this. What are you doing? Where are you going? Don't don't worry. I'm not asking people to send me hair so that I can expand my impressive collection of Richard Bradbury hair dolls. Uh, <laughs> although you can check out my page on Etsy if you want one. You really are a creepy man sometimes, Matt. Thank you. Um, human hair, it turns out, is really good at cleaning up after oil spills. Now, this isn't new news. The story of human hair being used to mop up oil goes back to uh, 1989 when a prototype was tested by NASA um, because, you know, there's all that hair floating around in those space stations. Mm -hmm. that, 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 I'm, I'm joking. That isn't where they got it. Um, according to CNN, the inventor, Philip McCrory, teamed up with the owners of an environmental nonprofit called matters of trust they turn donated hair into mats that can soak up oil spills on land and they also make booms that can be used for spills at sea so apparently hair soaks up around five times its weight in oil and it's comparable to the standard tool which uh, which is used for cleaning up uh, spills oil spills and that's a non-biodegradable plastic called polypropylene mm. which is the irony because oil has to be drilled to make polypropylene in order for it to clean up oil spills is this just for large scale spills no i mean these mats can be used to mop up the kind of spills we see on roads and in our carports as well um, mm. oil can leach its way into the water table in all manner of ways and, you know, we've seen only too often in Malaysia what happens when people throw industrial waste products into the rivers that supply our drinking water. Um, mm. I think the uh, last water plant shut down where I am was actually over Raya. So thankfully, there were so many people away, you know, it didn't really affect us. But, mm. um, you know, I, I think we have to get past that squeamishness about hair. Uh, matters of trust estimate that the average hair salon can collect about half a kilo of hair a week. And that usually ends up in a landfill. So I know a lot of people listening to this are cringing just at the thought. Um, mm. But one of those half kilo bags can be turned into a 20 centimeter by 20 centimeter mat capable of absorbing around five liters of oil now wow. to give you a to give you an idea of what that can mean in terms of pollution just one liter of oil can contaminate i think something like four million liters of drinking water wow. so um, matter of trust now has partners in 17 countries but it does seem that the only one in our region the closest one is uh, is Japan. So there's nothing in Malaysia at the moment. But if you want to know more, if you want to donate hair, check out their website at uh, www.matteroftrust.org. Okay. Um, have you got any more, um, more tasteful upcycling stories, uh, perhaps? Okay. 
bear with me on this one. So um, you might remember that a while ago we covered a story on a gut extract from termites being trialled as a way to safely dispose of treated and contaminated wood products. Yes. Um, yeah, building debris that was covered in creosote, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So scientists at the University of British Columbia have devised a process that can turn waste wood and byproducts like shavings and sawdust into a composite material that's stronger than steel. Uh, we've done, you know, a number of stories over the past few years about attempts to manipulate the structure of wood to create super materials that are capable of replacing the steel and concrete that are the mainstays of the building industry mm. and the literal rise of multi-story buildings that are made out of timber. So wood is uh, a sustainable material. It's much lighter than concrete and steel. It uses less energy to produce, yet we dump or burn millions of tons of waste wood every year, which this new process could help us to turn into another one of these super materials. So this is about manipulating the lignin and the cellulose from the wood. Yeah, so lignin is the bonding agent in the cell walls that holds all that cellulose together. I know that's a, a very basic description, so all the biologists and chemists out there, feel free to musk me with your own descriptions. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm just going to It's not going to hold it. on, you know. It's, it's not, no, it's I, not. I don't but. care. I'm, I'm musking it forever now. The, <laughs> um, the process uses a, a solvent to dissolve the lignin, which exposes fibers called cellulose nanofibrils, and those use the process of hydrogen bonding to come together. Mm -hmm. The resulting material doesn't look like a traditional piece of wood, but it's actually stronger than steel and a lot of composite metals. Now, we talk about the sustainability aspect, but is this reclaimed material itself recyclable? Very much so. In fact, you can put it through that same solvent process multiple times to mm. refashion it and start over again, which extends its lifespan as a material considerably. Um, this year, you might use it for decking. Next year, you might use the same wood to build a shed. And the process itself uses commonly used solvents and procedures that are already used in wood processing. So mm -hmm. the British Columbia team claims that there shouldn't be any problems in terms of scaling to industrial efficient levels. Uh, you briefly mentioned the wooden skyscrapers again. Yeah, so we've mentioned pilot schemes in the past where multi-storey buildings have been created from various superwoods, um, mm. usually in Scandinavian countries. Uh, I think um, the current tallest building is in um, uh, Norway. I think it's probably 80-something metres high. But now um, Switzerland is planning to have the world's tallest uh, wooden buildings. Um, these are known, um, I'm not sure whether it's affectionate or sarcastic, but they're known as ply scrapers. Uh, the of city, yes, of course, the city of Winterthur in Switzerland should soon be breaking ground on a huge wooden development anchored around a 100 meter tall ply scraper called the Rocket Antigeli building. Uh, there'll be four buildings in total the tower plus smaller multi story timber structures offering the usual mixed residential, commercial, retail, and leisure-type amenities. Mm -hmm. And it's set to be completed in 2026. All right. Um, we are running out of time a little bit on today's show. Uh, so what do you want to end with? Tomatoes.
Same uh, to you, but what do you want to end with? Exactly. Um, tomatoes, <laughs> the fruits that can be lethal when thrown, if you listen to certain uh, former presidents. Uh-huh. So this is another new scientist story. Um, about a billion people don't get enough vitamin D. Typically, they live in countries in the northern hemisphere where winter nights are long and the winter days don't provide enough uh, vitamin D. Uh, researchers at the John Innes Centre in Norwich in the UK, which is not far from where I originally come from, uh, developed uh, a new strain of tomato. Um, apparently, tomatoes develop a vitamin D precursor naturally, but an mm-hmm. enzyme stops them from uh, stops it from developing into vitamin D and actually converts it into cholesterol. So the Uh Norwich team used CRISPR to edit a gene in the plant called S17-DR2 to prevent that enzyme from consuming this proto-vitamin D. And have there been any noticeable changes to the modified tomatoes? Have they become like little little plump grenades or something? Well, no, and I bet you didn't guess you were going to be saying that sentence when you woke up this morning. Um, No, no, the researchers have noted that there hasn't seemed to be any change in terms of the growth or the yield. They don't mention taste, but I imagine that it's pretty much the same. Mm. Uh, There are still some hurdles to bringing these vitamin D-rich tomatoes to market. The researchers aren't yet sure whether the tomatoes would cost more to produce. So obviously that's a, a huge factor. And making them in the producing them in the UK, that might not be their natural home because they require a bit more UV to produce than typical breeds. So we might see them being produced in more kind of um, uh, southerly uh, countries with mm. more sunshine. Um, mm-hmm. And there are also some legislative hurdles to overcome. Uh, field trials are set to begin in June, and there's a bill about to be introduced by the UK government that would allow gene-edited foods like these tomatoes to be uh, treated differently in terms of approvals and red tape from mm-hmm. um Uh, for these gene-edited foods to be treated differently from gene-modified foods so that it makes it easier for them to get onto the supermarket shelves. So yeah, if the trials are successful, we could all be eating multivitamin tomatoes in a few years' time. Very cool, very cool. Uh, Thanks for today's show, Matt. Thank you, my pleasure. Now, as usual, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt or subscribe to the Culture Pop newsletter on Substack for more information about these shows. And if you miss any part of this show, head over to the BFM website if you'd like to have a listen back there or download the BFM app. It's available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. I'm Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.